is Ukrainian intelligence finally confirming what we've suspected from the start of this Russian offensive? Is, does Russia have anything left in the tank, and how long can they keep this up? I'm Paul, U.S. Army combat veteran. It is February 23rd, 2023. This is your daily Ukraine update. Let's get into it. Okay. First, control map. There's only changes around Bakhmut. You can see uh, Russian forces have made some advances to close this salient at Yadhine. Um, and you guys can see that the territorial gains, to the extent there are any, are, are of very limited value and are incremental, uh, a few hundred meters. Uh, there's also, of course, a small uh, push as Russian forces seize uh, looks like about six, we'll, we'll say six, maybe nine, six to nine city blocks in eastern Bakhmut. Um, again, as we've talked about, hopefully a reflection of the fact that Bakhmut is all about absorbing and grinding out Russian forces and forcing them into this tiny incremental block by block urban combat, uh, especially areas where Ukrainian forces have had weeks and even months in some cases to prepare defenses. Um, this has to be just absolutely a grueling fight for them. Um, and is, is again, strategically what Bakhmut is really supposed to be about. Um, you know, it's, it, it is symbolic certainly, but if it becomes known as the place where most of the Russian uh, combat power was eliminated uh, prior to a major offensive, that's a great use of, of, that region. Um, also, of course, we'll take a look at the combat map. Let's see if we can find it here. Okay, as you guys can see, of course, basically, the uh, Russia continues to uh, be unable to understand or execute on economy of force, with attacks being launched from all the way south of Volodar and north of Savolte, um, with a concentration, of course, in Crimea Lyman, a real concentration in Bakhmut. You guys can see this is probably where the largest portion of Russian combat power is, really trying to make this encirclement happen. Um, and again, it's worth noting that while we report Russian gains here, you have to see what they have to expend to make these gains. Uh, this is These gains are made at absolutely eye-watering levels of effort. Um, you can also see, of course, they continue to push outside Donetsk City and outside of Volodar. Uh, again, and on uh, all they have to show for it is about six city blocks and, of course, uh, looks like a small piece of what, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, what used to be woodland. Um, if you're on the Patreon, you know that we just took a look. We did a special breakdown of the viral trench video of, uh, they're calling him the Ukrainian Rambo, a guy named Predator, who just absolutely, uh, you know, go, goes nuts on some Russians in, in trench warfare. Um, it was a really interesting video. And one of the things that uh, we, we, pointed out and took a look at was that the area used to be a wooded area, but now it literally looks like a World War One no man's land, just just completely obliterated. So when we see these things on the map, it's probably indicative that there's probably not much there. It probably has been blasted away or cut down to form uh, defensive earthworks. So something to note when we see just just what exactly Russia has won for all of its effort. Um, but 
I wanted to take a look at some interesting news, of course, uh, from the Ukrainian intelligence directorate. This is the GRU, um, who told AP that Russian forces have indeed intensified their combat operations spread out over four or five directions in Luhansk and Donetsk and Zaporizhia. Again, viewer of the channel, not news, uh, beginning in February, but have yet to achieve any significant successes despite continuing to exhaust their personnel and resources. Uh, Russian forces are concentrating their efforts on capturing Kupiansk and Lyman, Bakhmut, Marinka, Avdivka, and Volodar. Uh, as we've discussed, right, no secrets there. This has been obvious for, well, since at least the start of February, that these are the key areas where Russia wishes to make gains. Of course, they don't understand that you can't advance on five axes at once. That's just not how, that's not how an offensive works. If you have, if you launch offensive everywhere, you've launched an offensive nowhere. Um, and it, offensives inherently involve concentrations of forces. Um, but what's interesting, of course, is the, in an interview with Forbes, now, now take this with a grain of salt because this is a public interview, but Again, as we've discussed, if you're a NATO-trained public affairs officer, what you do is you uh, you don't put out propaganda that's untrue the way that the Russians do. Instead, what you do is cherry-pick true facts, um, and those can be just as distorted. Again, look at how many NATO press briefings said that the Afghan army was strong and getting stronger and taking the fight to the Taliban, when in reality, the Afghan army like functionally didn't exist. Um, so don't, don't overthink this. But the uh, but NATO trained uh, public affairs are going to have them say true things that obviously align with their current messaging. And he says that this Russian offensive is so ineffective as to be almost unnoticeable. I, I don't think that's the case. Again, if you look at any of these viral uh, uh, helmet cam footages that we take a look at on the Patreon, you guys know it's noticeable. The the Now, is it effective? No. Is it does it appear to be able to effectively achieve breakthroughs and dislodge Ukrainian forces? Also, no. But it, to the troops on the ground, it's probably noticeable. Russian forces have been rationing shells, he reports, and ammunition to sustain assaults on their primary targets of Bakhmut, Lyman, and Volodar, while conserving shells in other areas. We've heard this, actually. You may have noticed that the Wagner Group, something else we took a look at recently, uh, Wagner Group is out there begging for shells um, and... It, the troops are even recording uh, videos, asking, pleading with the Russian Ministry of Defense and really pleading with the Russian public to get more artillery shells uh, to cover their advances, claiming that they are the only troops making advances, which is actually seems to be possibly correct if we take Bakhmut, if we take today's update to be any indicator. Um, and, right, Russian uh, artillery... He, let's see. He claims that Russia has imported a batch of test artillery shells from Iran and is currently attempting to procure another batch of 20,000 shells. But in late December, uh, that was the daily shelling rate. Uh, and in the initial invasion, it was three times as high. So again, 20,000 shells is going to have to go a lot longer uh, than currently. And 
Russian tactics around Volodar and Bakhmut, again, we've seen this in the videos, largely shifted from artillery and mechanized attacks due to infantry assaults due to the lack of shells and armored vehicles. Unsupported infantry assaults are bad. I mean, that's how World War I bad. That's what the World War I basically was. The advances and the shelling would have to happen hours apart. Um, and so you didn't it wasn't considered to be supported by artillery right artillery support would be if troops on the ground actually you know like in world war ii movies where troops get pinned down they get on the net and they call in an artillery strike and the artillery hits that machine gun post that's causing them problems or that enemy strong point um that's supported by artillery but just bombarding an area waiting six hours then having our infantry advance is not is not um that's not that's not proper artillery support now this is the most interesting line actually uh russia has committed more than 90 percent of its mobilized personnel to the front lines now this is significant because frankly one of the things that normally you rely on mobilized personnel to do is fulfill duties that free up your professional and most trained forces. Um, and mobilized personnel broadly are going to be best used because of their limited combat training in support roles. Uh, driving a truck, for example, that's something, you know, if you're a Russian with a driver's license, you could be trained pretty quickly to drive a military truck. Um, uh, you know, maintaining weapons or uh, operating a, a, a warehouse, right? These are pretty basic duties. Um, and that's really the duties that are best suited to recently mobilized personnel. Now, obviously, in a war, you need infantry. So, but the fact that 90% are being sent to the front lines and only 10% remain for rear area action, uh, rear area support, is really not um, indicative of an army that is sustainable in the long or even the medium term. And the reason I say this is because in World War II, for example, I'll see if I can find these ratios for you. Um, right, you had World War II uh, combat troop to support ratio. Right, these are a ratio of, there we go, okay. Um, there you go. It's called the tooth-to-tail ratio. It has its own Wikipedia entry. This is a good way to think about how an army needs to fight. Uh, the tooth-to-tail ratio. I've never heard it called this in a, a T3R. In military jargon, it's the amount of personnel it takes to supply and support each combat soldier. Um, so, right, and it points out that, of course, tooth-and-tail soldiers may find themselves in combat, um, and both may find themselves doing non-combat annoying duties. Tooth soldiers are those whose primary function is to engage in combat and the ratio is not a specific measure but an indication of a force's relation to the resources it devotes to supply upkeep and logistics um so what's interesting so this would be an example right of a uh of well something that we can use as a metric to determine and it says here basically automation and technology um High force the high tooth to tail ratio of more personnel devoted to combat, but these soldiers will lack support provided to the tail. Uh, logistics, communication, infrastructure on which modern forces to, to uh, depend, 
And but tooth to tail ratio of the U.S. military has varied in different conflicts, right? So let's see. World War One. That means every one combat soldier needed 2.6 rear area soldiers supporting him. In World War II, every combat soldier needed four rear area soldiers supporting them. In Korea, one combat soldier needed 12. In Vietnam, one soldier needed 13. In the Cold War, generally, it was considered 14. In the Gulf War, you actually saw a dramatic decrease in 1991. And that is just one soldier needed just five combat support troops. And in the 2005 Iraq invasion, that number was uh, uh, eight to one. So one combat troop needed eight support troops. And remember, these are, bear in mind that especially these last two, these are exceptionally low. Um, I think probably because the it doesn't always account for some of the U.S. military's exceptional workarounds. You know, like when I was in Afghanistan, there were civilian contractors, non-uniformed military personnel who did high-level vehicle maintenance. Now, they were in big bases um, that were obviously secured by military personnel, but the uh, they would not have been counted in this tooth-to-tail ratio, but they were obviously... American citizens working in the war zone, assuming a level of risk, performing essential logistics functions. And so this sort of improvement, while some of it is technological, right? When you have, uh, you know, if you don't have, if you have automated records, you can, one supply clerk can do the job of three supply clerks uh, back when everything was handwritten, that sort of thing. Technology definitely is a factor, but you should understand that, to be fair, even if you have a World War One level, a pre, really a pre-mechanization um, military, you want to have at least three times as many troops in the rear area supporting for as you do uh, actually charging at the enemy. So the fact that Russia has a tooth-to-tail ratio of, according to this, uh, 0.01 uh, is... It, worrying and it's unsustainable right at some point these troops at least three troops for every uh troop on the front lines is going to have to be moved back and engage in some support efforts in order to build this sustainable war machine that russia needs russia's only strategy at this point is to just attrit ukraine down um but it can't do so with 90 with no support and logistics keeping the war machine moving um right uh you know the kremlin wants to produce 800 tanks a year uh it can only produce 40 cruise missiles a month and that's used up in a single round of missile strikes russia's already lost probably 1500 tanks in this year of conflict anyway guys I hope you learned something. I hope you got something out of it. And of course, if you want to support the channel and check out all the viral videos that YouTube says are no-no videos, um, you can do that on the Patreon, right? I drop a breakdown every single Friday. Plus, when there's a really wild viral video that goes out, I will drop in and do some analysis midweek like we did on Wednesday with the trench video. Thanks to, of course, my Colonel tier patrons, EC1978, Predator7R, Judith Haynes, all my Lieutenant tier patrons, and all you guys for watching. I'll see you in the next one.